So I want to begin with a metaphor. Um, one of my favorite recreations is road cycling. And road cyclists are masochists because if you're a true road cyclist, you love climbing. You love climbing up mountains. And one of the most iconic climbs in the world is the Alpe d'Huez. Uh, it's in the French Alps. And it is an average gradient. It's about, uh, I believe, 17 kilometers of climbing at an average gradient of around approximately 8%. And it has 21 hairpin turns. And each of those hairpin turns is even uh, more steep uh, because it's a sharp turn. So if I, the, the best I could try to liken it to you to try to um, put yourself in the shoes of a road cyclist trying to climb up this and, and just subject him or herself to this pain. Imagine just walking up, trying to walk up the CN Tower. There's a staircase in there that you can get to the top. But imagine just trying to walk up the CN Tower with two sandbags, okay? And, and just every step of the way feeling the burning of the lactic acid, your heart rate um, just uh, uh, going up. And, and so my friend, uh, a buddy, that's him in the picture, and he was able to climb that this summer. And he posted it uh, on this website for cyclists. And, and uh, because it's so iconic, approximately 200 cyclists a day apparently go through this. And so people, uh, they're businessmen everywhere. And so they think, how can we monetize this? And so there are people waiting to take shots. And then you can uh, order your shot. And this is his shot with the watermark on it. And he is smiling. He's smiling. And said, why are you smiling? He said, that's a lie. <laughs> I was not smiling. But I just saw the cameraman. And it was just the natural reaction. <laughs> right? And, and for him, actually, it was one of the most grueling, painful experiences he's ever uh, experienced. And, and he's a strong cyclist. He's a strong cyclist. Now, here's the metaphor. Here's a picture of trial and tribulation, albeit this is self-imposed, um, but trial and tribulation, and it feels like in life when you're going through trials and tribulations that when is this going to end? But oftentimes, just like my friend, this is the metaphor, we just put on a smile and we make it look like that all of us are doing okay. And I bet right now, sitting in your seat, there are many of us here today, we, we've come to church looking our Sunday best, putting on our Sunday smiles, but inside, maybe right at the surface, maybe deep down inside, we are struggling. We're going through trials and tribulations. What I hope that you'll see with me today, the big point is that Jesus, Jesus leads me through trials and tribulations. This is a great hope of a Christ follower. And this is a unique hope that the Christ follower has. And so to our friends who haven't placed their faith in Jesus yet, this is the invitation we want to make to you, that you would consider letting Jesus lead you through trials and tribulations. We are, we're all going to go through them, but how are we going to get through them? And what's waiting for us at the end? This is what's unique to the Christ follower. And so three big questions that I want to ask today. First, do you think there's purpose in trials and tribulations? Second, why does God allow trials and tribulations then? And third, how does Jesus uniquely use trials and tribulations? And we see Paul going through a physical trial and tribulation at sea. And in the greater context of the story, he's also in chains in the equivalent of a modern day uh, prisoner bus transfer, but on a ship and with other murderers and convicts headed to Rome to be put on trial before Caesar. And so certainly Paul is going through his own trials and tribulations. 
So first big question, do you think there's purpose in trials and tribulations? Now, generally speaking, for some of us, trials and tribulations, we see them as consequences. It's your fault that you're going through it. You made poor choices, and this is fate. You deserve it. You, you have, you're eating your just desserts. For some of us, we, we don't think, just life happens, and, and so it's not about morality, and it's my fault to your fault, but it's just annoying. And because it's annoying, we, we try to circumvent it, we try to numb the, tri- the pain of the trials and tribulations, but there's just an annoyance, and we just think of it, and we stop at that level. For some of us who are more trying to understand and explain, we look for the design flaw, just our system of life, and, and trials and tribulations are, are a result of some system flaw, some design flaw. And if I can just figure out, if I can just maybe build this habit into life or organize and structure myself life a bit more efficiently this way, then perhaps these trials and tribulations won't happen. And for some of us, when we uh, encounter trials and tribulations, we, there's just something natural to us. We want to grow. We, we want to be soulful in those moments and, and see an opportunity to, to develop as a person. Now, these are all probably a little bit right and true and, and, and explain trials and tribulations at some point. But what I want you to do is to journey with me through this passage and see that Jesus has something even more profound and beautiful and unique in terms of why God allows trials and tribulations. And so the second big question, why does God allow it? And certainly here, we we can say with confidence that God allowed Paul, he did nothing wrong legally, but just as he was being faithful to Christ, faithful to the mission that Jesus gave him, and faithful to proclaiming the gospel, Paul somehow got wrapped up and found in just the system there, the legal system, and he found himself in chains, and he appealed to Caesar, and now he was on his way to Rome. And while on the way to Rome at sea, experiencing this great storm, and so a literal, physical, environmental trial and tribulation. So why does God allow these things? And I want to show you three things from Scripture today. First, they lead us to renounce our own works. Second, they lead us to repent. Uh, For those of us who uh, haven't been churched, who didn't grow up in church, I don't want you to have an allergic reaction to that word. I know the church has put a lot of baggage on that word repent, and a lot of condemnation and judgmentalism is usually associated with that word. But in true gospel, Jesus-following Christianity, Repent is a beautiful thing. It's a, it's a freeing thing. And third, they lead us to return. Return to what? To whom? We'll see. So first, to place this all in context, here's a map. And you see a big cloud, the emoticon there for the storm. That's where the storm happened, okay? In the middle of the Mediterranean Sea and specifically the Adriatic. And so to give you reference, um, there's Rome, Italy, where Paul was ultimately headed. And he had just taken off from the island of Crete. And if you recall, in the uh, narrative that was read, uh, suddenly a northeaster. Now, scripture doesn't record this, but history and historians uh, tell us that the name of that northeaster wind was the Euroclidon. Okay, that's an ominous name. And suddenly this Euroclidon, Northeaster, just came, and they were struggling along the coast of the island of Crete. And so Cauda, Syrtis, etc. 
And as they were being driven along, they couldn't anchor, and they were driven out into the sea. Uh, the ship sailed. <clears throat> uh, they were eventually, they would eventually end up at Malta, the arrow that just um, fell. But along the way there, that Euro Clyde and pushed them out into the sea, and that's where they experienced the storm, and they would eventually uh, crash land in Malta. So hopefully that gives you some reference. And so, <clears throat> diving into the text then, first, trials and tribulations, they lead us to renounce our works. Now let's pause. Luke here, curiously, I, I, I want to, when, um, when, when eternity comes and we're in the new heaven and the new earth and, and we get, have eternity to spend time and have coffee and whatever with uh, who, whomever, I, one person I want to sit down with is Luke. And I want to ask him, so why at certain points did you go to just painful detail and even just concrete everyday details? And at certain points, you were more just theological and, and, and even transcendental in your description. And, and here, it's so curious that he takes pains to record very concrete, minute details of the, of the storm at sea, okay? Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll answer that curiosity in a few moments. But what we do see here, as we pick up in verse 13, now it picks up like, like any good story. First, there's, there's peace. There's just normalcy, status quo. And, and so, like normal good stories, that's the first ingredient. Now, when the south wind blew gently, gentle, <laughs> supposing that they had attained their purpose. Isn't that how most of us live life? We go through life, and we think, life's good. Life's good. They weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. And then, like a good story, tension. But soon a tempestuous, tempestuous wind called the Northeaster, or the Euroclidon, struck down from the land. Okay? And so now, God is allowing circumstances to change that their comfort, their normal, their status quo, their lack of need for God, their lack of need for anything beyond what they're satisfied with now in life is getting shaken up. God is stirring the pot. And so we jump to verse 20. I'm skipping some verses in between. But basically, Luke records in, in clear detail, minute details, just how <clears throat> the storm developed and just even how they couldn't uh, anchor and, and, and his point is he's trying to describe how physically, environmentally, this was actually difficult, beyond difficult, near death. To the point, we jump now to verse 20, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us. And here's where we see the trials and tribulations that God uses them to lead us to renounce our works, our strength, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. The verses prior, they're doing everything they can to try to save themselves. You can go back and read the details. We don't have the time because it's such a long passage to comb through all the details, but Luke records all these details of how they're trying to save themselves. Our, our version today might be, well, I'm going to invest smarter. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to uh, you know, just uh, cozy up to the right people to curry the right favors and, and so forth. We, we will do everything 
in our strength, that's what we mean by works, our strength, our intelligence, our charisma, our kindness, our goodness, whatever it is to try to save ourselves, to put ourselves in a better position. And here, as Luke records, neither sun nor stars, now this is literal because it was so dark, it was a dark storm, but also there's something meaningful here. The sun represented life for these people, and the stars represented orientation, knowing, being able to navigate through life. They used the stars as a map, and they had both lost their life, and they had lost all sense of orientation in life. But God, what he wants, why he allows trials and tribulations in our lives is to get to the place to be able to echo what they, what their sentiment, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Now this was literally physically being saved, but I'm certain in their hearts as well, their thoughts, their emotions, there's a longing for spiritual saving. God, are you there? Now trials and tribulations also lead us to repent. Now repent, the, just the, the, the New Testament understanding of repent, in fact the entire biblical understanding of repent is just literally to turn. It's just to turn. I wanna apologize on behalf of the church if the church in history ever has attached to repentance uh, that it has to come with you being ground, just pummeled to the ground, beat to the ground, and, and being made felt to feel worthless and just leave you there. That's not biblical repentance. Biblical repentance is, it happens when there's something so much more beautiful, something so much more wonderful and life-giving and saving that you can't help but turn towards that and give your attention and so we see here that Paul, he's leading them to turn. And so Luke continues the narrative, since they had been without food for a long time, meaning they, they got to the end of their own wits. They, they got even to a place of hunger, of wanting something, needing life and nutrition and, and goodness in their life. Paul stood up among them and said, and this is Paul calling them through this trial and tribulation to turn, to repent. Men you should have listened to me. You should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Now earlier, he had given an argument um, to say, if we leave at this time, then these trials and tribulations will uh, come upon us. But they didn't listen to him. And so perhaps it's a I told you so moment for Paul. But his point is this. I want you to turn and now I want you to listen to what I'm about to say to you. And so trials and tribulations lead us to return. Repentance for a Christ follower and the kind of repentance that Jesus invites us to is not just to be condemned and then to may feel guilty and to try to be a better person out of that guilt, but it's to return to something greater and more beautiful and life-giving. And so now we pick up in verse 22, after he says, you should have listened to me, so turn, repent, yet now I urge you to take heart. In this moment, in this trial and tribulation, in the midst of your trial and tribulation, not when it somehow passes, but in the midst of your most difficult time that you can repent and return. And when he says to take heart here, I thought at first it was meant to place your faith, but I looked into the, the meaning of it in, in the original language, and it actually means be glad, be joyful. Can you imagine that? In the midst of this storm, Paul is speaking to them and saying, you can actually 
be glad and have a deep joy beyond the circumstance of these waves that are crashing over us and beyond the fear that you feel in your heart that grips you, you can have a real joy that is greater than that and and overcomes that fear. And Paul says confidently to them with conviction, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship for this very night. And why can Paul say that? It's because he received a word from his God, a reminder of whose he is and how beloved he is. He says in verse 23, for this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. That's what we need to return to in trials and tribulations. That's what Paul is asking them to consider. In this trial and tribulation, now turn and return to knowing whose you are. That even in the midst of this circumstance, there is a good, loving God that is in control and has a plan and purpose for your life, to his glory and for your greatest good. And so we return to our identity in Christ, whom I belong, and to making him our greatest affection, whom I worship. And Paul himself, he gives his testimony in verse 24, and he said, this is the messenger of God to him, do not be afraid, Paul. Transparent and vulnerable here. And he's saying, when he says, he's honestly sharing, the message to me was, do not be afraid. Meaning, Paul was afraid. But how is Paul encouraged? Because the message from God to Paul is, you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you, meaning everyone will be safe. See, what Paul was returning to himself in the midst of this trial and tribulation was a real sense of calling and purpose. You're going to stand. My purpose for your life, Paul, is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and to even stand before Caesar himself, the one who thinks he himself is a God and the mightiest in this world, and you're going to present the truth, this message that, no, Jesus is the Savior of the world, not you, Caesar. And so to bring it down to our everyday, in trials and tribulations, this is why a sense of calling is so critical for strength in our faith. To know first that you're called as a child of God, a calling of salvation. That's the most important calling, a spiritual calling. But then also a vocational calling, a sense of God, you have me on this earth, you have me at this office, you have me at this job, you have me at home as a homemaker, you have me in this season in my life, and I wanna be glad in living every day out for you. And then our relational callings. God, you have me in this relationship at this time in my life, even as difficult as it might be, that you want me to be Christ's presence to this person. And then verse 25, this is Paul making his invitation to the 275 people on the ship, the other 275. So take heart, men. You can be glad, for I have faith in God. And his invitation is, I want you to have the same faith in this God, that it will be exactly as I've been told. See, Paul's hope and his anchor in his soul was God's word. Now, this was a prophetic word. This was a a very specific circumstantial word for the moment, but that ties to God's greater word. Now, I love how Paul gets very uh, real and practical. And so he's given this message And as they're sailing on, and we jump to verse 33, they haven't crashed at Malta yet, but as day was about to dawn, uh, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, 
Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense without food. Now, apparently, they didn't believe. And there was still anxiety and, and uncertainty, even for 14 days. And so in verse 34, therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. See, Paul wasn't just a big brain. Paul wasn't just a, a, a floating soul. He wasn't just spiritual. He was very human as well. He was very much about faith engaging everyday real life in the concrete. And he sees, even out of compassion, I, I read some compassion into these words. I see some compassion. And he's saying, I wish they could eat. I mean, I'm sure some of us here have experienced this kind of anxiety where it even takes away our appetite. And this is what was going on with these sailors. And he's trying to urge them, please eat. You know, not eating is not going to do any good for you. Now, Paul models then, and he demonstrates his faith, why he can be at peace and eat, that he can have an appetite even in the midst of this trial and tribulation. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and he models praying, giving thanks to God in the presence of them all. He broke it and began to eat. And they were encouraged by that. They, they saw in Paul. They didn't know who Paul was before this point. He was, to them, just another convict, an unassuming um, criminal in their eyes. But wow, imagine their astounding, their astonishment to see this person that they thought was just a murderer or a criminal, to have this kind of strength, this deep strength, unshakable strength, and they see him modeling. They, they see the source of the strength, looking up to the heavens, thanking God for even this sustenance, for this, this, this bread, this measly bread, but from a big heart of thanks and being able to have peace in this trial and tribulation and eating it, and so much so that they were all encouraged. That literally means strength was put into them. Their anxiety went away, and they were able to eat some themselves. And here's the point. Trials and tribulations they not only lead us to renounce our own works to try to save ourselves, and, and they not only lead us to turn, to repent, but they lead us to return, to return to God in Christ, to return to placing our faith in him, and to return to living out our faith in everyday real life. Real faith is lived out in real life. And so when you go to work tomorrow, when, when whatever circumstance hasn't changed tomorrow morning. That is the exact place that God wants you to be, to be allowing these things, to be working something in you, to grow you into greater Christ-likeness. Faith, Christianity, following Jesus is not just to be, meant to be a mental exercise, and or just a Sunday exercise, an isolated hour and 15 minutes, hour and a half, whatever time it is that, that, you, you know, that, that takes up um, the Sunday but to be played out in everyday real life. And, and so practically speaking, to just give you some practical steps to take, continue to nurture that, that internal conversation with God and go to him in the name of his son, confident that you can go to his throne of grace and whatever it is that you're facing. Say, God, now here's to get back to the curiosity. Luke recording all these details. And, and, and these concrete, minute details and taking pains. I think one takeaway, at least for me, is that we're meant to be as 
detailed and expressive during our trials and tribulations before God as we can be. And this you see repeated throughout Scripture. You look at the Psalms, and when the psalmists are going through the mires of their life and just the pits of what feels like death, just how bloody honest they are, how to, down to the emotions, and even to express doubt, to express exactly what they're going through. For me, what's been helpful to be very practical is, is to journal and, and to just write out. These days, maybe you can just use your smartphone and take notes and, and just to type out, to write out, to express to God, God, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm going through. This happened today. To express all those things and to lay that all before God and to trust just as he wrote Acts, just as he orchestrated this history that we're studying this, this morning, that he is in the midst of your circumstance as well and trying to lead you back to return to him, to grow closer to him through this. And so that brings us to the third big question and the most important question, then how does Jesus, Jesus specifically, because that, that's whom we're about here. It's all about Jesus being lifted higher and Jesus being the answer for all of us in all our life situations. How does Jesus uniquely use trials and tribulations? Because if I just stopped here, then it, it could sound just like a good motivational speech, a good motivational talk, a, a, a kind of just generally spiritual talk. And so we need to know, how does Jesus uniquely use our trials and tribulations? And the simple answer is this, that they lead us to redemption. Redemption. And we see this in, in I want to show you this from the rest of the passage. Now, to help us understand what I mean by this, what I think scripture, what Luke wants us to see, this picture of redemption is, we got to contrast a few things. We want to contrast what we call common grace, just God's common goodness and kindness to general humanity versus a specific saving grace. We need a grace that can forgive our sins and save us from our sins and welcome us into eternity in the new heavens and the new earth in love relationship with God. We have to contrast the difference between just positive thinking, and, and I know I mention positive thinking a lot, I pick on it a lot, but I think it's because it's such a powerful force, especially in the Western world. Even as I watch during the summer, one of my favorite uh, watches on, on TV is America's Got Talent, and beautifully talented people with immense gifts and abilities, but always the general speech, the interview is like, you know, if you just believe it and work hard enough, then you can achieve your dreams. Any good will happen to you. And it is true to a point because God's common grace is poured out and he, 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 he still pours out his, his goodness to allow us to grow and develop and achieve. But it's not to, enough to save us from our sins and from death. And so we need a redemptive thinking. Now, to boil it down, to, to really try to identify the difference between positive thinking and redemptive thinking, common grace and saving grace, it really comes down to the difference between my work versus Jesus' work. My work to try to actualize all my potential, to become as I can be, versus my entire life, my entire merit, my entire hope, my entire identity is anchored to, is, 
it only has a smidge, even a smidgen of hope if it's united to Jesus' work. But in fact, it's not just a smidgen. But when you're united to Jesus' work, his perfect work on the cross and the resurrection, then even our works become beautiful, good works. And so we see here a picture. As they crash on Malta and they uh, run into these people on Malta, look at this. The native people showed us unusual kindness. This is a beautiful picture of humanity, of God's common grace. And even though they're not Christians here, because the image of God, albeit broken, is still in them, they can still exhibit a beautiful, unusual kindness. And literally, the word there is a grace. They they themselves are able to extend grace. But jumping ahead, verse 5, he, however, so Paul had... um, there was a fire, and, and he was working with the fire, and we know that a viper jumped out and uh, bit him. And all the people on the island, this is the way people, apart from God, think. They thought karma was about to happen. That because Paul was a criminal in their eyes, who had just come off this tra- prisoner transfer ship, and was bitten by the snake, see, he got what he deserved, karma. And so they thought, He was going to die. But Paul, verse 5, he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. That's the wrong conclusion, too. (laughs) See, they, they thought, now, wow, he is someone by, he has a certain strength to himself that he can defy even poison. And so they took common grace, and now God's miracle here, but they just concluded still within that thinking of my works, my strength, this, this person is, is superhuman. That was their conclusion, instead of looking to the God that actually saved Paul. And then we see another picture, that the leader on this island, his father lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And so this is God again, through the power of the Spirit, performing miracles and wonders through Paul. And they're obviously ecstatic. In verse 9, they, when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases all came and were cured. Now Luke doesn't tell us that because of this they believed in Jesus. They, they just were astounded by this work, and they took it in, and they were happy that people were getting healed. But Luke gives no mention that because of this miracle, this wonder that they believed in Jesus. Now what, as a reminder, why, why does God allow miracles and wonders, especially through the apostles in the New Testament? Because they're little glimpses. When someone is healed, we all want our loved ones who are sick to be healed. Why? Because we want them to live forever. Why? Because God has put eternity in our hearts. And, and when God allows someone to be healed, when we witness a miracle during this life on this earth. It's not just to me a joy in and of itself, but that's supposed to be a pointer to our eternity. That's supposed to cause us to hunger all the more for eternity, the final new creation where all sickness and disease is eradicated and wiped away. And they didn't get that message. They just thought, wow, now my life on this earth can be more comfortable. So let me wrap it up. See, apart from Christ, trials and tribulations generally for the human spirit 
it just causes us to strive. How am I going to climb up that mountain and be able to say at the end, I defeated this mountain? How am I going to think most positively so that I can achieve and feel good about myself at the end? Trials and tribulations apart from Christ, it just causes us to strive more. But trials and tribulations, the attitude that we're supposed to have, are supposed to lead us to long for redemption, where we look to Christ and his work to take our life on this earth and whatever trial and tribulation that you are going through and to turn it into something good and beautiful that lasts into eternity, that gives utmost glory to God. And because you trusted in Christ and his work, to trust that even what you are going through, first, that he is taking care of your greatest trial and tribulation, which is your sin and death. And then as you go through your circumstantial trials and tribulations in the everyday, to trust that, God, you're forming me into greater Christ-likeness. You're leading me to renounce my own works and to turn to you and to return to knowing whose I am and to have the image of Christ formed in me all the more. Then we will be able to say like Paul, as he writes to, in another letter to his beloved Philippians, that we'll shine like stars in the universe, no matter what we're going through, and we'll shine out God's grace. So may you know, through whatever it is that you're going through today, the joy of being led by Christ through your trial, your tribulation, so that God can be glorified through it and you can shine his grace to the world. Amen.